brightness against the drab background of broadcloth. Talk was a steady hum, punctuated with the abrupt, shrill laughter of the women and the shots of the contestants. Bart was a favorite with the crowd. It was so exciting to watch him shoot. His style was spectacular and sudden. The act of firing was quick, almost savage in contrast with his manner and the tone of his voice when calling for targets. He was the special favorite of the Bristol people, Coming from the metropolis of the district, they were inclined to be somewhat clannish, to champion a common preference. This pleased Bart, flattered him. He began to stand and talk with them between turns at the trap. The women were frankly admiring. They cooled their praises, looking up into his face. "'Oh, my, Mr. Bart,' they said. "'Oh, my goodness, you shoot so quick!' They were entranced, they said. That was the word they used. One nudged another— there was more smoke than fire here, but already an openness of speech had come down to Bristol, filtered south from Memphis, where the breakdown of the old lifeway began. "'You reckon he's that sudden in bed?' and went off in peals of laughter while her companion passed it down the line to the others. They did not speak this way to Bart to his face, but some of it was transmitted. It was new to him. It scandalized him, though not unpleasantly once he had become accustomed to it. Despite the success, the wealth, he was country-bred. He was cut off from those who had been born to all he had gained. The trips to Memphis and New Orleans were commonplace by now. He went in both directions twice a year. That was the custom on the lake. But it was not as a Memphian that he picked his way down Union Avenue and spent heavily in the stores, and it was not as a New Orleans blade that he walked the dim, narrow sidewalks of the Vieux Carré and heard voices, mellow and soft with sin, waft down from the lacework wrought-iron balconies over his head. Wherever he went, he went as a countryman. Whatever he saw, he saw with the eyes of a planter who did his own farming. He was indeed ingenuous, even naive, but his bearing lent such dignity, his bank account lent such prestige, that his innocence was never under fire. The money men kept away from him with their wildcat schemes, and even the Bristol women, who by now were far from backward, went no further than to coo at him. He still enjoyed spending evenings at home with his family, sitting on the porch after supper, as always, watching the daylight fade and the stars burn through the roof of night, like sparks on a blanket, and hearing the mockingbirds trilling and fluting in the sycamore beside the steps. The scene was much the same as it had been from the start. These might have been the identical mockingbirds. His three children, however, were leaving childhood fast, Hugh was fourteen. Next year he would be going to school in Tennessee. He had turned out handsome, a pale reproduction of his father, blonde, with more delicate features and a shyer manner. He also had inherited his father's love of hunting. He was easily the best wing-shot among the boys on the lake. Bart gave him a Parker double, a twenty-gauge with a cut-down stock, and often took him shooting. Florence was a mystery to everyone, especially to her father. He tried, but he could never understand her. She was twelve now. Usually she seemed older, almost grown, though there were times when she acted like a child. She had hoyden ways. She rode horses that fell on her jumping fences. She climbed into the loft of the barn and swung from rafter to rafter, whooping like an Indian. Other times she kept to her room, dressing and undressing her dolls, nursing them through imaginary ailments. She was calculatingly disobedient and would go into tantrums if she was denied her way in the smallest matter. 
Even as a baby, barely walking, if she was crossed, she would hold her breath, puffing her cheeks and growing red and redder in the face until she frightened her nurse into letting her have her way. Later she abandoned this method for one more drastic, more satisfactory to her love of excitement. She would fall on the ground, preferably mud and preferably when she had just been bathed and dressed. She would kick her heels and squall. Whipping only made her show more effective, for then she would hold her breath until she was blue in the face, making her eyes bug out. Bart was puzzled. He could not understand. Why should a child deliberately want to be bad? If Bart had a favorite among the three children, the favorite was Clive. He entered the Ithaca School that year, 1905, and was the special delight of his teacher, Miss Bertha Tarfeller. She had taken the place of the palsied old lady who had died since Hugh and Florence started to school. Clive was the handsomest of the three, dark, a little fat, precocious, always laughing and talking. Hugh avoided him, and Florence plainly detested him. They would leave the room when he went into one of his acts. But this gave him small concern. What he wanted was the admiration of adults, especially his father, and he got it. Bart was forty-five that spring. Look how the years mount up, he said, shaking his head slowly from side to side. I'm getting old, Billy, old. But he did not believe it any more than Billy Boy did. That winter they began to attend dances at the Elysian Club in Bristol. These were the prime social events of the Delta year. Invitation lists were a roll-call of the elite. Nominally, they were intended for young people in their teens, but everyone went. Dancing was only a part of these affairs. Mothers and grandmothers sat against the wall around the dance floor. Loaded with jewelry and waving feathered fans, they formed what was called the Rocking Chair Brigade, watching with satisfaction or dismay how many or how few of the stags cut in on their daughters and granddaughters. It was an important step in a woman's life, a step toward death, when she moved from among the dancers and took a place among the chaperones. Fathers and grandfathers collected in the adjoining club rooms, men of all ages from thirty to seventy, uncomfortable in stiff-bosomed shirts and dinner jackets, they talked cotton and politics and flood control while the young people wheeled and pranced in the noisy ballroom. That was an important development in a man's life, too, when he found himself spending more time in the outer rooms, preferring conversation to dancing. There were only two of these balls a year, one at Easter and another at Christmas, but the members made up for this by the extensiveness of their preparations. They gave dinners beforehand and breakfasts afterwards, and they tried to make every ball better than the one that had been held at the same season the year before. Visitors came from what was called out of town, which meant that they came from anywhere in the world beyond Bristol, from Bannard ten miles to the east, or from another continent. Here Bart found something else he had never known before, and here again he liked it. He enjoyed being part of all the groomed elegance, lounging in one of the club rooms, smoking cigars and listening to the talk. He also liked to stand at the rim of the ballroom, watching the young people dance to the jerky foxtrots brought up the river from Storyville, to marches such as Maryland, My Maryland, played in jig time, to waltzes by Strauss, which made him feel slightly seasick, thumped and puffed the way they were by Negroes in button shoes, peg-top trousers, and high-boiled collars. The Grand March was especially colorful. 
Bart looked forward to the time when his sons or daughter would lead it. He watched all this with a show of reserve, but inwardly he was like a boy at the circus. Grand, he thought. That was a word he had never used before. So in contrast to the glitter of these new experiences, chatter and flattery at trap shoots, music and decorum at the Elysian Club, the Lake Jordan life paled. It had been solid and estimable. It had been worth the labor spent. But now he saw things beyond it. There was a region where his accomplishments on the lake were nothing in comparison with what people native to this land received on the day they were born. Now that this was open to him, he told himself, there need be no bogging of his facilities, because here was a new field for endeavor. He did not have to lash out for action, he told himself in the words of the dead prophet. The action was here. It was ready at hand. Next spring in Memphis, accompanied by a group from the lake and competing against a field of two hundred marksmen from Tennessee and Arkansas and Mississippi, Bart won the Tri-State Trapshoot Championship. He broke one hundred straight in the qualifying round and ninety-seven in the semifinals. This last was not very good. However, since most of the shooters were off form that round, it was good enough to pass him into the finals with nine other men. One of them was Dr. Jacob T. Tidings, a Memphis surgeon, present champion and three times winner of the shoot. He was a soft-spoken elderly man, a favorite in southern sporting circles. The finalists stood at two traps, five at each, with a crowd of three thousand murmurous behind them. Bart wondered how much this would bother him once the pressure was really on. He had never shot in front of a large crowd before. What was worse, this crowd was partial. Whenever Dr. Tidings missed, which was seldom, they groaned a collective, ah. The slim gray doctor and a short fat.